0: Thank you. potential and possibility discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another fascinating guest today who has helped and continues to help uh, create a better tomorrow for millions of people around the world. Uh, We have the honor today of being joined by Dr. Emilio Amini, uh, Chief Executive Officer of the Bill and Melinda Gates Medical Research Institute, uh, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the development and the effective use of novel biomedical interventions addressing substantial global health concerns uh, for which investment incentives are limited. Uh, And he leads the Institute's R&D of novel products and interventions for these diseases, which ultimately disproportionately impact uh, the world's most vulnerable populations. Uh, Before joining uh, the Gates Medical Research Institute, Dr. Amini served as the director uh, of HIV and tuberculosis program at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where he led the organization's efforts uh, on accelerating the reduction of the incidence of HIV and tuberculosis in and high-burden geographies, ultimately with the goal of achieving sustained epidemic control. Over the course of his career in the biopharmaceutical industry, he's led teams involved in the R&D of novel anti-infectives and vaccines. Uh, 1983 to 2004, he led research at the Merck Research Labs, involved in the development of one of the first highly active antiretroviral therapies for HIV, and Senior Vice President of Vaccine Research, uh, the successful development of a number of vaccines, including those for human papillomavirus and rotavirus, later served as the Senior Vice President of Vaccine Development at the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative. And from 2005 to 2015, he was the Senior Vice President of Vaccine R&D at Pfizer, leading the development of a Prevnar 13 vaccine for prevention of pneumococcal diseases. He's been awarded numerous awards over the years, uh, elected fellow American Academy of Microbiology, International Society for Vaccines, and the College of Physicians here in Philadelphia. He received his uh, PhD in microbiology, genetics, and biochemistry from Neil Cornell University Graduate School of Medical Sciences, and we are truly honored to have him with us today. Uh, Dr. Emilio Mini, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule today.
1: Well, Ira, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: It's great having you with us, uh, Emilio. You know, I'd love to start off just um, uh, a piece that you wrote a couple of years back on World AIDS Day, uh, which was entitled The Experiences That Made Me an AIDS Advocate and Keep Me Going 30 Years Later, where you, you recount you know, sort of the experiences of your youth and education growing up in New York City, uh, leaving uh, to do your graduate work at a time where HIV was emerging, obviously your critical thought leadership and helping to turn AIDS from this death sentence at the time into a livable condition. And then you come forward in time And, you know, you're traveling the world nowadays and you sort of see a lot of of what looks like what was happening back in the early 1980s. Um, Can you talk a little bit about, uh, in 2022, sort of this unique schism and whether we're dealing with HIV or some of the other diseases we're going to be talking about on this show, a little bit of how a lot of this informs your current strategies on dealing with these unmet uh, infectious conditions?
1: Well, Ira, you know pretty much like everyone else, you know what 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 one does at a given time in one's life is always you know very clearly you know reflected on reflects you know the previous experiences right of one's life and and thank you very much for that introduction. So as you can tell, it's been it's been a long time right that uh, that I've been that I've been doing this. So going back to you know the early uh, 1980s. So you know when I finished off my uh, postdoc. So as you know, I got my PhD <clears throat> from uh, Cornell Medical. But then when I, uh, I finished off my postdoc, which was a postdoc working on polioviruses, you know, so remember this was the early 1980s. So this mm-hmm. was sort of at like the beginning of you know molecular biology, and all of the tools involved in molecular biology. You know, I worked with uh, Professor Eckhart Wimmer who was at uh, Stony- what is now Stony Brook University, out on Long Island, trying to understand you know what it is about what made poliovirus vaccines poliovirus vaccines, right? And uh, for, on a molecular you know, basis. So I became very much interested in vaccines. And when the opportunity came to go to uh, to Merck at the Merck Research Laboratories in 1983, it was really to a large extent to learn more about vaccines. Uh, Morris Hillman, that everyone who's ever touched a vaccine, you know, knows about in considerable detail, uh, was still was still there at the time, and I felt that this was a good opportunity to uh, actually learn from individual who had spent his entire life in decades prior to that time working on vaccines. But then, as it turned out, uh, you know, this is when uh, AIDS, you know, first became, uh, you know, became evident. Unfortunately, you know, it was uh, what was it? it? Was 1980 when it was first uh, when it was first? Uh, well, I, well, in 1980 was when, yeah, when, when it was first reported. Mm-hmm. A little bit before then, and then in 1983, the virus HIV, you know, was 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 isolated and described. So, uh, and, you know, I had grown up in New York City. I, I, I went to, I would actually, until I went up for my postdoc at Stony Brook, I pretty much lived in the city my entire life, right? So, uh, and the neighborhood I grew up in, I was a neighborhood in uh, Greenwich Village. So as you can imagine, uh, AIDS uh, hit it pretty hard in, uh, in, in the 1980s. Um, uh, even though I had left to, you know, go out to Long Island at the time, my mother still lived in the city. So I uh, would obviously go, uh, you know, to visit her very frequently, you know, in the city. And even when I went to Merck uh, here in the Philadelphia area, I I kept going back to the city. And uh, you could pretty much see the devastation, right? You could see the devastation of uh, a, you know, at that time was referred to as an epidemic, but it very quickly did, in fact, also become a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when the opportunity came up at Merck, when the company made the decision that this was not something that it could ignore, but really needed to work on, both from a vaccine perspective, but even more importantly, from an antiviral therapeutic perspective. Remember, this was a time when very little was known about the virus, other than the fact that it was a retrovirus. That uh, was an opportunity that uh, all of us that were there decided we needed to become involved in, you know? And for me, it was very personal, right? Because uh, a lot of people now don't remember, you know, that. You know, you go back to that period of time. All of the big hospitals had what they called AIDS wards, where essentially mm-hmm. people who had AIDS went to die. I mean, that, that was basically all there was. I mean, that, that, because there was nothing else that could be done, and uh, and the need to 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 change that, uh, you know, was critical. I remember I remember people clearly suffering from AIDS. You know, young men, you know, suffering from AIDS you know, when I'm walking down the street there in, in in New York, you know, hailing cabs to, you know, go to see the physician or, or, or you know, go to emergency room. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it's pretty striking and obvious that this was something that needed to be done. So that's what drove me into doing any of our work. When, uh, you know, when the opportunity, when the company decided it needed to do this. So from about 1985 until, you know, we got to 1996, when we came up you know, with some of the first of those of what became known as highly active antiretroviral therapies. And you know, that was the first time I, I experienced that, that one of those situations where you, know, you develop something novel that all of a sudden changes the course of an entire epidemic, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and certainly within this part of the world, uh, the AIDS wards at the big hospitals literally closed from almost one month to the next because now, you know, AIDS was no longer a death sentence. Now a lot more work needed to be done in subsequent years, you know, in order to make the, the therapies, you know, more e- easier to use and, and more and more available. But in the end, it, that was a very, uh, uh, it was a very unique experience, you know, at, uh, at the time. Which, and what also happened, of course, was that even though one could see the AIDS wards in cities like New York closing down, the transmission of the infection in other countries around the world was extraordinarily large and particularly in sub-Saharan Africa right and so, so that that dissonance that occurs right between saying well look we did something but it's only being effective in this one part of the world you know how do we get it to be effective and how do we get it delivered to every other population that needs it and uh, and that's what drove me back into vaccines because I felt with vaccines it would be a lot easier But then in the subsequent years, it also drove me to saying, you know, we really do need to understand how to use, you know, these therapeutic interventions or vaccines as they're developed, not only for those parts of the world in which they're developed, but for for true global public health. And that's how I became, you know, more, more and more interested in global
2: public health.
0: Excellent. Excellent. And you, you know, at Bill and Melinda Gates Medical Research Institute, you have really four major global public health, substantial global health concerns, uh, malaria, tuberculosis, diarrheal diseases, and then sort of the basket of maternal, newborn, and child health two, three, and four we have discussed on the show. We'll get into those in a little bit. But I'd love to start off with malaria because you know I go to this site and you have some staggering figures here. Uh, We hear about the 500,000 people every year. It kills 200 million sick. But then there's this other figure. Malaria may have been responsible for half the people dying who've ever lived, which is you know, another shocking piece of this disease. And the interesting thing, obviously, um, from an infectious disease perspective, right, COVID has taken up a lot of the public mind in sort of the the popular press the last couple of years. But um, most recently, actually, in the last couple of months, there's actually been quite a bit of exciting action on the malaria front, Um, a certain movement in terms of the Muscurix recombinant protein vaccine, which I know you at uh, Gates were responsible in funding, Uh, also some new uh, oral uh, anti-malarial single-dose options. Can you sort of give us a little... uh, landscape of what we're dealing with in 2022 and and some of where you're choosing to focus because i know muscarics is there it's exciting but then there's other stuff coming in terms of higher effectiveness uh, vaccines and so forth uh, what, are you, what are you focusing on in terms of malaria nowadays
1: well you know for for, for all of these you know uh, i'll call them the pre-covid big diseases right yeah. so what are they? they're hiv the malaria and tb right, right. and 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 uh, the, it's uh, so for all of these, and, you know, and the same thing to a certain extent was true, you know, in the early you know, in the early months of, of COVID, what, what, what did we try to do? We tried to, even though, it, you know, in retrospect, it may sound a little bit naive, but the, the focus is still the same, which is you want, you want to eliminate this. I mean, you yeah. really want to eliminate these diseases, right? You want to eliminate right. the diseases, you want to eliminate the underlying, you know, pathogens and infections. Now of course we always need to remind ourselves that with the exception of smallpox, right, and, and 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 maybe one veterinary vaccine, one veterinary you know pathogen, this has never really ever been done, right? Because yeah. smallpox was unique in that respect, but still one wants to make a you know a really good attempt at uh, at at doing it. So in the case of malaria, you know, malaria, in spite of the development of all of the interventions that we talked about, you know, malaria elimination is a challenge and will continue to be a challenge, you know, in, in parts of the world where malaria is transmitted either throughout, or, throughout the year or, or even, you know, or, or seasonally, which is, you know, in most cases the way malaria is transmitted so you know the original you know the original concept of well let's get rid of you know the anopheles mosquito vector okay that's fine and good but you know that 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 has its issues and it's you know it can be controlled and it can be managed you know with indoor insecticide spraying and certainly one of the biggest uh impacts has been the use of insecticide containing bed nets right yeah. which uh, you know has, has 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 pretty much protected the young children from uh, from acquiring malaria but the uh and and vaccines like you know the rtss you know vaccine the the Mascarix vaccine that you just referenced you know uh are reasonably effective somewhat effective it's 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 you know maybe not to the level that one would like but still to a level that will have an epidemiological impact in protecting young children in particular, who are the ones that are much more likely to actually suffer from the negative sequelae of a malaria infection, including, including death. And that can protect them basically, you know, from, you know, from that. But, uh, uh, and then of course, the use of mass drug administration, where one goes into areas, you know, prior to a, uh, the period of seasonal transmission of malaria, And you treat all the young children with malaria prophylactic drugs right that works as well i mean it works remarkably well but of course that's challenging because one needs to go into those populations for mass drug administration several times over a season at least right so as you can imagine the logistical challenges particularly during the rainy season when the transmission occurring is not easy right And, and can be done and not easy to do so there is there are needs for other interventions right So there are needs for developing vaccines that are potentially more effective than the Mascarix vaccine. There's a need to develop a vaccine which can be effective in preventing infection or reinfection of adults in these Mm -hmm. populations because many adults in these populations are persistently infected with malaria and serve as, it is now well understood, serve as the primary source of the uh, plasmodium, uh, the, the, the parasite that the mosquito picks up and then transmits to the kids, right? So in addition to protecting the children, if you really wanna eliminate malaria, you have to cure the persistently infected adults and then vaccinate them to prevent them from becoming reinfected. Right? Mm-hmm. And having a vaccine that is highly effective and very persistent in its protection in the adult population is now is is currently lacking right so that's where a big focus in the field is including in our Institute is to develop such a vaccine. So that when you put it all together between protecting the children through the drug mass drug administration or insecticide-treated bed nets, or the use of the muscarix vaccine, and then treating and curing persistently infected adults, and then protecting them with a highly effective long-lasting vaccine. You put it all together, then the numbers all of a sudden start to work when you start talking about
0: malaria elimination. Excellent. And um, moving from from malaria to tuberculosis, uh, here we have a leading cause of death nowadays in the top 10 in terms of all diseases infectious disease it's the number one 1.6 million per year um we chatted about tuberculosis on a show a little while ago and and the fact hey it's it was also the 100th anniversary of our vaccine uh with the bcg vaccine developed back in the day before Fleming developed penicillin, so it's been around for a while. Um, some of the anti-infectives, I think the 1940s and 1950s, they were first developed. Uh, where were you we headed uh, with, at, at the Gates organization with regard to, because I know your focus here is we need a, we need a more effective vaccine on this one. hundred years, we, got, we need a new one by now. Where are you walking with this one?
1: Tuberculosis is a big challenge, right? Yeah. And I keep reminding everyone that before COVID showed up, Tuberculosis was, in fact, the number one infectious disease cause of mortality on the yep. planet. Right. So, yep. you know, uh, when I ever, whenever I describe these numbers, it oftentimes catches people by surprise. But you know, roughly a quarter of the population of the planet, a quarter of the population of the planet, is persistently infected, latently infected with Mycobacterium tuberculosis. Yep. That, those are big numbers, right? Mm-hmm. And every year you get roughly 10 million cases of active tuberculosis, right? Which which people have become persistently infected then you know ultimately go on. Not everyone does, but there's a certain proportion that do go on and develop active TB, right? And about 10 million cases of active TB, and that's usually been associated with roughly one and a half million cases of, of, of TB associated that's a year. These are big numbers. Now, unfortunately, COVID has blown right through those numbers, right? But you know, like I would try to, you know hopefully explain to everybody is that eventually when COVID settles down into the epidemiological background, whenever that may be, and whenever it is, TB will still be there, right? And TB will once again become the number one killer, infectious disease associated killer of of people on the planet. The challenge with TB is exactly what I mentioned. Most people are latently infected, right? They become latently infected with TB. And uh, not all of them will go on. Actually, it's actually only a relatively small proportion that will go on to develop active TB, you know, in their lifetimes. But the numbers are so big, you know, with a quarter of the planet's population being latently infected, you can imagine why you're getting 10 million active TB cases a year. So the numbers are just enormous. So, you know, control of TB from an epidemiological perspective is really hard, right? Because the way if you want to control it is to prevent new cycles of, of infection with mycobacteria. Well, that can be hard, right? When you've got 10 million active cases and the current supposition is that transmission occurs from individuals who have active TB. Though there's a growing body of evidence that even individuals who don't have clinically obviously symptomatic TB are also potentially capable of transmitting TB at least at certain times. So what's critically important for TB control uh, are three things. One, you need better diagnosis, right, because you need much more rapid diagnosis, because typically what happens is that as an individual who's, who is latently infected with, with, uh, with mycobacterium tuberculosis, may not even know they're latently infected, will ultimately develop, you know, when they start to develop active TB, will develop clinical symptoms, right? You know, the usual clinical, flu-like symptoms, fever, what happened, you just feel lousy. So then you go, you know, you go look for to, for, for, to get treated. Mm-hmm. But then when you go to look to get treated, you also then need to be diagnosed. And not only do you need to be diagnosed, but you also need to determine whether or not you've been infected with completely drug-sensitive MTB or if you've got drug-resistant MTB, because that's obviously going to influence the, uh, the therapy that you're placed on. So you can imagine that by the time everything is said and done, it can be weeks, if not months, between the time the person becomes capable of transmitting the infection and the time the person is actually diagnosed and put on therapy. And then when the individual is placed on therapy, usually effective therapy will render the individual, make the individual non-infectious within a couple of weeks at most, pretty fast. But in order to completely affect the cure of TB with the current therapies, it can take as long as six months, uh, six months right? Uh, using using you know multiple you know therapeutic options, and if you've got drug resistant TB, therapy of which has gotten better in the last set of years, it still takes you know number number of months in order to affect the cure, and you therefore have a certain proportion of individuals who relapse because it's tough to stay. I mean, you know, just you know, it's tough for people to stay in seven days worth of antibiotic treatment. Imagine staying on six months of antibiotic treatment, right? <clears throat> it's hard, right? So what's needed is better and much more rapid
2: diagnosis,
1: preferably you know, passive, what I call point of care diagnosis, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're not relying on an individual who feels ill to go seek care, but that every time an individual you know, makes contact with a healthcare system in a given geography or in a given country, the person is automatically tested for TB. It's worked for HIV, right? For mm-hmm. HIV, you know, particularly in areas that HIV turned out to be you know, uh, you know, present at, at very high levels, People would get immediately tested when they showed up for any reason, right? When they go to an antenatal clinic for for expecting mothers or anyone else, they would get tested. If you're HIV, HIV positive, be placed on treatment. We need to have the same kind of diagnostic capability for TB, so that's being actively worked on, not by the institute but by many people on the outside to see can we develop you know better, more effective you know TB diagnosis that one can embed in 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 a, in a primary healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And then from a treatment perspective, uh, one needs to develop better treatment uh, options, ones which can affect cure in a much shorter time frame than six months, preferably only a couple of months, right? And that would be tolerable and relatively easy to use. So you get passively diagnosed, you've got TB, you know, present in your oral secretions, you've got TB, therefore now we're going to treat you, and here are two months worth of treatment, and you're cured. And you're mm-hmm. done. So that's the dream, and one of the areas that we're working on at the Institute with the number of collaborators is to look and develop novel uh, therapeutic combinations, right, that can be used so as to achieve a much shorter period of actual cure than, than six months, preferably within a couple of months. So that's one area. And then, of course, you've always had the vaccine, right? And the vaccines fall into two categories, right? You have vaccines that are designed that hopefully will establish an immune state that will prevent infection from Mm -hmm. actually occurring. And then you've got uh, vaccines that are designed to prevent the development of TB in people who are already latently infected with the organism. If you do the modeling, it's the latter one, the one that prevents TB that will have the biggest epidemiological impact and also public health impact related to it. Now, BCG, as you noted, it's one of the earliest vaccines. Uh, last year in, the, uh, in, in, the, uh, in uh, uh, 2021, it was actually its, its 100th year anniversary. Now, that is used predominantly in young children, uh, newborns mm-hmm. and neonates, to prevent... Uh, infection with TB, all right? And also to prevent clinical TB in kids because young children, uh, particularly neonates and and newborns, when they become infected with with MTB, the mycobacterium tuberculosis, will quickly develop actual clinical TB, right? It's not pulmonary TB, it's what's called miliary TB, but it's more of a systemic disease. Mm -hmm. But but it can prevent that. It's been extraordinarily effective in, in being able to do that. What it cannot do is that it will not prevent Uh, pulmonary TB or the acquisition of mycobacterium tuberculosis in older individuals because after the neonatal period the next uh, highest period of transmission and infection begins at around early adolescence and goes into young adulthood all right Uh, and in that population you know for BCG that's given you know as a baby there is no impact on prevention of MTB infection in this older population so one of the things that we're studying is what we call BCG revaccination uh, following, uh, and this is an ongoing clinical study that we're doing in South Africa, following on an earlier observation from several years ago where you can take adolescents who are not infected with with mycobacterium tuberculosis with the organism, receive BCG as, as infants, and now you revaccinate them in early adolescence with the hope of uh, establishing an immune state that'll prevent the potential of becoming infected during that early adolescent, early adulthood period, right? So that study is ongoing. We'll see if we can repeat those initial results. That will hopefully lead potentially to a policy change in terms of how BCG is used worldwide. We'll see what happens. The other approach is to uh, study <clears throat> is to study a vaccine uh, that could uh, potentially prevent the uh, uh, development of TB in individuals who are already infected. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That can have a significant impact. You can just imagine it. If in fact you get a vaccine that can in fact do that, uh, and so again we're working on a vaccine called M72 ASO1E, which mm-hmm. is a that was licensed to the institute by GSK, who originally developed it, and we're still working collaboratively with GSK in the vaccine. Uh, and to assess it in a phase three study, in a phase earlier phase two B study that was reported right before the covid pandemic you know caused us all to hesitate on the things that we were doing right uh, you know showed some you know pretty interesting efficacy in the study in these individuals you know up to between 50 to 70% efficacy depending on how you define the endpoint of tb disease in prevention of tb with you know a consistent observation over 3 years subsequent to the vaccination so we'll see what happens we'll see what happens and then we've got a full phase three development program you know built around that vaccine which includes not just the clinical studies but also includes doing the cmc the, the the actual you know production development sure to do and with the adjuvant again working with gsk because part of the vaccine will be supplied by gsk into the future if we it. You know, successfully successfully develop it.
0: got it got it excellent um moving on to diarrhea um second leading cause of death among children, once the leading cause was rotavirus, and our, our friend who lives right outside here, Paul Offit, and you were instrumental in, uh, in, in developing the rotavirus vaccine. Um, a lot of other things cause diarrhea. You're focusing next on Shigella. Can you say a few words about that?
1: Well, you know, if you look at the four big causes of diarrhea in in low and middle income countries, you know, what are they? You've got typhoid. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and and in fact, the the foundation, my colleagues at the foundation funded some very nice studies to develop a conjugated typhoid vaccine (laughs) that can be used in little kids. So as that vaccine gets rolled out, hopefully we'll have an impact there. That's that's one area. The other one is cholera. right. And cholera (laughs) vaccines have been around for some time, of course. And it's a matter of they're just literally being used, you know, in in in, in, in inappropriate settings. Mm-hmm. You mentioned rotavirus, so there you go. So that's so that hopefully we have a vaccine there. So that leaves us with uh, shigella, right? Okay. And uh, and and shigella is you know is uh, pretty significant. It's, it's highly infectious. There are multiple serotypes of shigella flexneri, uh, which uh, which can. Uh, uh, you know, cause you know very severe uh, and, and damaging you know diarrhea in young children, obviously resulting in death. Uh, the Shigella sonii, that's another that's another form of Shigella. So you know, a Shigella vaccine will have to be a multi-component vaccine. Mm-hmm. What's been known for a long time, uh, going back to the 1990s, is that the uh, uh, immune response, the antibody response to the surface oligosaccharides of the Shigella coat can be potentially protective in preventing uh, the establishment of a a virulent Shigella infection. Uh, It's it's a tall order because it doesn't take a lot of Shigella organisms to actually cause what's known as Shigellosis, uh, which is the the dysentery that's associated with the Shigella infection. Uh, But there are multiple approaches, all funded by my colleagues back at uh, at the foundation. There is one particular approach that we're working on uh, that uh, along with, uh, again, uh, our, our foundation colleagues, to see if we can develop a vaccine that can elicit, you know, very high levels mm-hmm. of, of anti, uh, you know, uh, surface oligosaccharide uh, 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 antibody responses, immune responses to, again, the three different predominant shigella flex serotypes and Shigella-Soniae. We're very early on in that program. Right now, it's in the process of development. Uh, We're hoping to bring something forward in clinical studies within the next couple of years. Uh, And and some of our colleagues in the field are also working on similar vaccines. So the next couple of years, I'm hoping that we'll see some at least early indications of potential efficacy in little kids with with these kinds of conjugated oligosaccharide vaccines. And then uh, hopefully one of them, whether it be ours or anybody else's that's undergoing development, will be successfully developed. We'll see where we go in the next few years. Yeah, but, it, but it will have an impact, without a doubt. Given oh yeah. That's also, the other problem with shigella is, and unfortunately, particularly particularly in low and middle income countries, an unfortunate increase in, in antimicrobial resistance. Right? Yeah. The fluoroquinolones, which are typically used for treating, uh, you know, shigellosis, uh, the organism is becoming very rapidly resistant. Mm-hmm. The vaccine is very much needed.
0: Absolutely. Um. Lastly, Amelio, uh, maternal and newborn health, and this is um, obviously one that has a very, and you have it drawn out quite nicely, although a little complex on the website in terms of sort of the, the ecosystem between mother and infant and, and everything that you know, can go wrong. Uh, you know, actually, you know, we had the from your former from, from Merck, we had the uh, the Merck Foundation uh, people on talking a little bit about this area a few months ago, um, and and. In the United States, we do a pretty bad job as well. Uh, but um, talk a little bit about the uh, dry powder lung surfactant and, and a little bit of of this angle and why uh, you've chosen to to approach uh, of all the, of all the problems that exist in, in this ecosystem. Uh, why this one's exciting to you?
1: Well, well, we we, we we sort of made a change in that one, but we'll come. i Okay, tell me where you are going. No <laughs> longer working on that particular approach, but, but okay. I'll, I'll, I'll explain what we are working on. Sure. So first of all, it is it is a you know a big sort of you know sort of maternal and neonatal child health as you've noted is a sort of a catch all right a big yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot, lot of you know considerations under that umbrella, you know and as far as newborns particularly you know newborns in challenging environments you know there are issues related to you know neuroprotection right there are issue you know they're in early development there are issues related to uh, to uh to lung development right particularly in 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 uh, in uh, uh you know premature newborns as as, as as we as we know, and then a very interesting one area we are working on, and that is early neonatal nutrition and okay. we'll come back to that in a second. So, with respect to the 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 lung surfactant issue, that remains a significant issue, as you know. And, and mm-hmm. in this part of the world, it is dealt with, you know, now almost routinely, you know, in 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 neonatal you know intensive care units, where you ensure the use of an appropriate lung surfactant so that the child's lungs can you know, can operate and can expand mm-hmm. if the if a child is is born prematurely. Uh, but you know, the the way in which it's done is, you can imagine, in the uh, in the uh, uh, in, in this part of the world and in you know hospital and neonatal units in in, in major medical centers that's that's not going to work you know in low in particularly low income country you know field usage right so so one effort that is being heavily funded and heavily focused on by my colleagues you know back at the foundation uh, is to try to develop a more facile way of delivering lung surfactant right to to Early newborns, uh, premature new- newborns in difficult under I'll call it difficult field conditions. Uh, the dry powder lung surfactant is one particular approach. is not being completely abandoned. It just wasn't yet ready for full development. Let's put it that way. Uh, but there are other approaches which uh, which use uh, you know the more traditional liquid lung surfactants, but it's also a matter of, of developing an effective delivery system, right, which is much easier to use and much simpler to use in, in areas where you just don't have people or, you know, or healthcare workers that are necessarily fully trained, right? So it's got to be something to be easy to use and easy to deliver and obviously at reasonable cost. So all that work is being very heavily funded by my colleagues at the foundation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: One area we at the Institute did get, get involved in, and again, it started with an original set of, of, of uh, interventions that were funded by again my foundation colleagues uh, is the use of uh, probiotics in neon <clears throat> and it's a, just just bear with me for a couple of minutes it's a very interesting story sure so, so in most healthy infants, certainly in this part of the world, and I didn't even know this until believe it or not, I got involved in this field, you know, some months ago. Uh, there, uh, as a result of, of just the natural environment and the, and the natural mother's environment as well, uh, one of their, their, uh, the the uh, intestinal tract of these of young children uh, is naturally colonized uh, with a organism known as uh, uh, we, call it, we call it just B. infantis for short, right? So, so it's, a, it's a bacterial organism that uh, uh, has the ability to break down um, uh, proteins in mother's milk, basically mm. break down milk proteins, and therefore the child can absorb it, right? right it
2: okay. it
1: in the absence of gut colonization with that organism, the breakdown of mother's milk proteins does not occur, mm. right? so that the young child does not get the benefit of nutrition from mother's milk as a result of that. And in undernourished children in low-income countries, uh, unfortunately, the gut colonization with B. infantis is a rare event. It does not occur. So in a study that was funded by, again, my foundation colleagues, a study that was conducted in Bangladesh, and uh, the the data of which became recently available, The supplementation uh, using a B. infantis probiotic, right, of mother's milk, right, when it was fed to the young undernourished children had a spectacular effect, right, on improving the uh, undernourished children's weight relative to size, which is one way in which you determine, you know, appropriate development, just simply by the addition of this one probiotic, right? You know, and and because you add it to mother's milk, the child on, uh, feeds on it, the B. infantis then uh, implants in the gut, right, and now all of a sudden the child becomes capable of breaking down the mother's milk proteins and getting the benefit from it, right. So that's what this one study showed, but that's what's just simply one study. So given that observation and given the extraordinary impact that was seen with that, we are now working with a couple of organizations that naturally make b infantis as a probiotic that they add to supplemental probiotics that you can buy in drugstores in order to have them produced in a way that is acceptable from a regulatory perspective, that they're produced consistently, that they're produced at the right titers and what have you. And once we completed that work with them, which is not too distant future, then to bring that forward into a much larger study than the one that was originally done in Bangladesh so that we can get some very good statistically pretty robust data that shows that supplementation of mother's milk with this B. infantis probiotic is in fact capable. All right. Of, of colonizing the guts, the, the guts, the intestinal tract of newborn children and uh, and, and subsequently permitting better nutrition simply because now the child can actually use the proteins in mother's milk. Mm-hmm. you know. So it's, it's part of this, you know, uh, increasing understanding of how important, you know, one's uh, probiotic uh, one's biotic environment is, right, Absolutely. In, 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 in good health. And here's a really good example of it. And the fascinating thing about it is that, you know, this is an intervention that would be simple to use, right, easy to use. Sure not that expensive, you know, and it's relatively straightforward and something that the mother can do. It doesn't require, you know, a, a, a clinic setting, mm. it makes an enormous difference in, in in the early development of the young child. So let's keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best. But this is one of those, you know, sort of, you know, public health early interventions that can have an enormous impact.
2: Right. So absolutely.
0: You know, I, I love hearing stories like that, especially when it comes to, you know, some of these, uh, I say natural, but sort of the uh, the whole microbiome story, and you know how we're finding it connected to uh, to, to so many important systems. No, that's that's uh, extremely eye opening and, and, and fascinating, Amelia. I'm, I'm really going It's going to be an interesting one to follow.
2: Uh, it will be an interesting no one
0: doubt. to follow. No, and I, I
1: think of all the areas that we're working in. Actually, when you look at it, it's the one that, if it all works out, knock on wood, it's the one that's going to have the earliest impact. Right of all the areas that we're working. Oh yeah this
0: is you know it's 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 a simple intervention so yeah um amelia in i think in a couple days uh you're going to be giving a keynote um along with stan plotkin at the new york academy of sciences entitled the future uh, of vaccinology uh and obviously uh, in the in the covid 19 vaccine race we've seen all forms of vaccinology, from the, the microRNA technologies to things like the the Corbivax uh, sort of recombinant work at Baylor. Uh, you guys at the foundation funded Novavax and and some of those were uh, traditional uh, vaccines. Um, what, what are you going to be talking about uh, at the at the conference? And sort of what gets you excited? Sort of in twenty twenty two, looking at the general vaccinology landscape.
1: Well, you know, it's so, so the focus of my talk is going to be that, you know, just like any advance, you know, there's nothing particularly special about vaccinology. I mean, nothing happens in vaccinology that is outside of the advances in scientific understanding and the development of novel technology, right? So the first part of my talk is to go back a full hundred years and just take a look at the vaccines that have been successfully developed and place them within the context of what was known at the time they were developed. Both scientifically, both from you know the pathogen's perspective, the immunological perspective, and what was known technologically, right, related to that. And of course, Stan Polkin, who follows me, is going to do a much better job of doing that than I ever can. But but that's uh, but uh, but that's the first part of it. But then it the transitions to like we're like where are we now, right? And, and what has happened, particularly over the last set of years. So what we've seen is certainly in the context of the development of COVID vaccines, we've seen a, uh, you know, a phenomenal, you know, usage of, of you know, vector delivery systems, right? Whether they be, you know, mRNA delivery systems, whether they be the adenoviral vector delivery systems, and a few others. So this started going back, you know, a few years ago. First of all, it started certainly if you take a look at the adenovirus vectors, that started way back 20 years ago with HIV, right? You know, and and, and HIV didn't work all that well in HIV, simply because of, the, of HIV from an immunological perspective, but the vector delivery system worked. And then of course, the successful use of vector deliveries, such as the VSV vectors and the adenovirus vectors for Ebola vaccines, right? Which was the first successful use of that. But then of course, that then translated to the development of COVID vaccines. And then a very novel vector delivery system, which is the mRNA delivery system, which was right at the right time of its technological development when COVID hit, you know, it sort of all came together in one confluence there, which allowed then the use of that novel technology for a COVID vaccine that also led to an understanding of mRNA technology that cannot be applied to many of the other vaccines that are still you know, pending, you know, to be developed. Uh, so that's one very good example of that. But the other, the other thing that if you look at novel vaccine, you know, technology, and this is really less technology that's inherent in the vaccine itself, but the technology that you use to understand how a vaccine needs to be constructed is an understanding of the actual interaction between the pathogen and the immune system, right? Mm-hmm. So again, in, in a very simple way, you take a look at COVID, the, the, the work that was done by our friend, my, my friends and colleagues at the v r c and people like Barney Graham, John Muscola, you know, and, and, and that entire group that showed that, you know, for the spike protein of, of, you know, of the coronaviruses, you know, you need to stabilize it. You need to stabilize it in a given way in order to express those antigenic determinants that'll give rise to neutralizing antibodies. You know, so that was knowledge that was applied immediately in the development of most of the successful COVID vaccines, right? Mm-hmm. But but that only was applied simply because there was work that was done in the field with other coronaviruses, right? And an understanding of how of the interaction between the structural understanding between the interaction between those coronaviruses and the immune response, particularly the antibody response, RSV is another example of that, right? Respiratory syncytial virus. Again, the work done by by Barney Graham and colleagues, you know, back at the VRC, that showed the importance of 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 stabilizing. Though it's a lot more difficult with RSV, stabilizing the uh, the fusion protein of the RSV in the pre-fusion state, right, and using that as your immunogen, which you know, for many years, no one ever understood and wound up developing RSV vaccines that never worked, right? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, (laughs) they work. So now you've got You've got better and better technologies as time goes forward in really understanding the nature of those immune responses, particularly the humoral immune responses and the antibody responses. Right, you can isolate you know various monoclonal antibodies. You can you can test you can you can assess them at a structural level how given monoclonal antibodies you know interact with you know the potential immunogens and surface structures of of, of pathogens. You can uh, you can from the immune system perspective, actually look at the usage of, of, of immunoglobulin genes, for instance mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. and you can look at the usage of immunoglobulin genes and really try to understand you know you know what you know what what, what development pathway for lack of a better term do I need to drive those gene products those you know to, to give rise to antibodies that are in fact, that are going to be you know, very effective yeah. HIV and a lot of the work that was done in HIV, uh, you know, drove a lot of this work originally. And of course, unfortunately, unfortunately for HIV, what's been discovered is that, you know, driving the immune response for an effective HIV response is going to be really hard, not impossible, but it's still going to take some time to figure it out. Mm-hmm not to be a lot easier for the coronaviruses right you know you know re- re- related to that but you see but again it's 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 where we sit in our technological environment and our understanding of the nature of the immune responses that use, and even on cellular immune responses and understanding of you know the specific determinants that are presented by various MHC molecules right in the context of a given infection and what that can do and then translating that into an effective vaccine so we're moving we're moving from a period where you know we develop vaccines more or less empirically right mm-hmm. i mean the days of live attenuated vaccines what were they those are empirical right the yeah. i don't know what immune response is going to be effective so let me use an attenuated version of the pathogen and hope for the best right, right. you know we don't need to do that anymore we can mm-hmm. understand what we're trying to elicit uh, and uh, and so that's what the that's what the future you know potentially holds, you know. And as you develop these technological systems and th- this better understanding, this then becomes part of that toolbox, just as we saw with the COVID vaccine response, that hopefully will be available when the next pathogen that drives a pandemic shows up. Because it's only a matter of time.
0: Yeah. Um that segues <laughs> that segues into the next question, Perfect because um when when one puts uh I'm really reading into PubMed, and and your several hundred papers come down. Uh, you know, we see pneumococcus and HIV and polio, uh, but we go to the very beginning of it all, back in, I think, 1980, you published a couple of papers on something called Venezuelan encephalitis virus, which I believe, if I, if I looked up the right one, this is an equine virus, if I'm not mistaken. Uh,
1: Probably the only person who's ever read that paper, yes,
0: but at any rate, Yes. And- <laughs> The reason I bring this up, and we'll talk about pandemics now, or or future pandemics, keep our fingers, whatever, but um, we talked about this principle on the show uh, of One Health, uh, and the fact that, yes, unfortunately, there's a lot of nasty stuff still out there, uh, and we have to have uh, a pretty good understanding of the the human-animal-environment connection and, and how it all works together to... Hopefully, whether it's the bat or the zebra or whatever it may be, <laughs> that, that is serving as that conduit uh, between something very scary and us, we, we got to be there, as you were just saying, uh, and prepare. I, I know that a couple of days ago, and as your colleagues at the foundation, um, did a had a program at Nova Nordisk Foundation, talking about some antiviral programs for future pandemics. Can me you just your top line on sort of One Health and, and what you're thinking Obviously, you've, <laughs> a lot on your plate that you think about, but when you think about all the other nasty stuff that's out there, and that be Venezuelan encephalitis, but um, what are you thinking about? Uh, what are you thinking about in terms of One Health programs, um, what we should be setting up, where we should be investing a few billion dollars to, to prevent the next given I mean, to it's it's
1: a, it's, a hard, it's a tough question. So, so I mean, look, the... the so, so what do we have, you know, what we've got is a world right now, which has a lot of people in it, right, more yeah. people than it's ever had previously in, yeah. its, in its existence as a, as a planet, so you've got a, a lot of people. You've got the ability for a lot of and for continuous intermixing of those populations, right, which much more so than ever ever in the past. You've got obviously the contact with—I'll call it the natural world—for lack of a better term, you know—which uh, is a lot more extensive than it's ever been, you know, in in the past. So the potential movement uh, of pathogens and adaptation of pathogens, you know, into humans from animals and vice versa, for that matter, the probabilities have simply gone up over time. I mean, there's just no other way to put it, right? And, and they've gone up substantially. The challenge, unless we all want to live in a mountaintop, you know, by ourselves individually, the challenge is to try to take a best guess as what the next thing is that you need to worry about, right? The challenge with that, Ira, is that, you know, your best guess in terms of what's coming is always colored by what has already happened, Right. So, in a lot of these efforts to try to develop, you know, potential novel pan antimicrobial agents, you know, pan antiviral agents, you know, in the case of viruses, or develop, you know, vaccines that can be effective against entire classes of of potential pathogens, that's entirely focused on those classes of potential pathogens for which we have a pretty good idea for which the next major human pathogen might come from. Mm -hmm. And it's all, you know, coronaviruses were always on that list. Right? They were always on that list. The influenza viruses, you know, the, the, are, are, yeah, are, are are on that list. The paraflu viruses are on that list. The alpha viruses, of which Venezuelan encephalitis virus is, is 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 a member, is is on the list. When mm-hmm. I was working on Venezuelan encephalitis. Uh, back in the late 1970s, the reason why it was of such interest, and we were, in fact, the lab I was in was heavily funded by, uh, by by the U.S. Army back then. Okay, uh, was was it was in fact because there was a very large uh, ongoing epizootic, right, making its way up yep. from South America through Central America of uh, Venezuelan encephalitis infections. Right, the mosquitoes would feed on the, on horses and, and donkeys, basically, you yep. know, and would, would spread the infection on the other horses. But then it was jumping to humans, and it was jumping consistently to humans. So the concern was that you would eventually, you know, it it was eventually going to break into this country because it was making its way up through Central America and then into Mexico and then who's next? Texas is next, right? right? Then it was gonna is gonna come there. Now that was eventually taken care of in spite of all of the efforts to develop a, a vaccine and try and understand what was going on by simply killing all the mosquitoes. This mm-hmm. was back in the days when you could just you know spray the Rio Grande Valley with mosquito insecticide, and that was the <laughs> end of that. But you know, those days are gone. But yeah, you know, but, the, but the, there's an example of again that would have been you know, one that would have, could have broken out into a uh, non in substantial epidemic. And we see it with, with dengue, right? We see it with chicken good, yep. right? And so 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 that so that goes on. So so. Trying to, trying to develop, you know, interventions, whether they be antimicrobial interventions, antiviral interventions, or vaccines, you know, in advance of then being forced to actually having to use them, right, to actually control a novel epidemic or, heaven forbid, another novel pandemic, you know, the, the hope is that'll put us in a place where, you know, we're not chasing the next pandemic as we just did, right, with, 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 with COVID. But you know unfortunately, you know humans in general have this tendency and maybe it's a biologically ingrained protective tendency that once you get past a, 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 a uh, uh, an experience in one's community and in one's life where things were really bad and things have gotten better, you forget about the really bad stuff right and you <laughs> never prepare for the next really bad thing that can happen right so and so therefore the objective here is not to forget it right right. And, do the work that needs to be done so that you can be ready whether or not the next pathogen is another coronavirus or an alpha virus or anything else that that can come out of the you know epidemiological background and yes it will come from animals you know that's basically where they're going to come from yeah and but we're too connected to them right you know you're too connected to the world of bats you're too connected to what's going on with the mosquitoes you're too, definitely too, you know too connected with with everything yeah you know, it's you know it's 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 going to happen again
2: right? yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah
2: so I
0: plan for it uh plan, you
2: know,
1: for it, plan for it at the very least have the technologies available yep. you know which happened as i said more by luck than anything else in with covid have the technologies available that you can quickly apply if you haven't already applied them right yeah. they're trying to deal with what with what appeared because until it appears you don't exactly know what's going to appear right you can only take a guess
0: right um maybe one final question um you know, there's this theme that um underlies a lot of uh the work you've done and 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 a lot of what you're focusing on now. And I come back to you know, sort this term of combination, right? Um, you know, you help turn HIV from a death sentence into a livable disease with antiviral combinations. You know, you talked about T, new TB combinations, uh, the bacillus infantis is a unique combination of of probiotic materials, you have this really cool uh, paper where you, you did combinations with the um, uh, the pneumococcal vaccine, with Hep B, and uh, inactivated poliovirus and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's interesting things we can learn um, from your space of of antiflexive vaccinology for other chronic degenerative diseases. Because usually, you know, usually in sort of the FDA's world of the past, you know, we developed drug A, B, and C. Uh, and they're on the market for a while, and then we combine them much later on. There's been some new guidance lately about how one could develop combinations of therapeutic interventions early on. Do you see some interesting moves on this front obviously they used actually
1: no 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 i i and i'll tell you the, the one area we already talked about that we're working on which is you know novel combinations of tp therapeutic agents right they can shorten therapy so one of the challenges there is that you know the combinations that we're looking at you know are made up of of uh, of, of compounds and of drugs some of which are already registered from a regulatory perspective right. most of them are not okay, okay. So, so that question is actually very much a top of mind question, which is to work with regulators. You know, once we come up with a combination that you know will meet what our target is in terms of you know the time required for for cure, but then we're going to have to sit down with regulators and 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 work out that you know here you know what we're going to want to register is the combination, not the individual drugs, right? The combination. Now, traditionally, one would have to have had to demonstrated the individual activity of those drugs, all right, related to that. Yep. And we can certainly do that preclinically, but to do that clinically and then to do for each one of those drugs and then to do it in combination, at least to the extent in which you know regulators have asked for those studies to be done in the past, is, uh, would lead to a very long development period, right? So So it's, it's a very real issue, and it's one that's going to have to be addressed, particularly for those pathogens like TB in which, you know, you know, you need to have combination drug therapy, right? Yep. A single drug is not going to do it. So finding novel, you know, regulatory pathways to deal with that is going to be critical.
0: Outstanding. You know, um a fascinating set of programs Emilio. i mean i'm i'm gonna be reading you on uh, I've, I've been reading you on for the last few decades but uh, I, i'm glad to see you you're where you are now taking care of these uh significant unmet medical needs yeah.
1: I, I appreciate it all right and if i can just leave you for just you know one 30 second last thought here sure please take the floor going, going back to the, the the one health question you know that you asked you know so you know when we look at one health we typically you know when that terminology is used it's you know it's it's, it's, it's the fact that, you know, humans and other species, you know, inhabit the same, the same ecosphere, That's it's true. But we also, you know, can't forget that humans and humans, you know, live in the same ecosphere, and yeah. what do I mean by that? What I mean by that, and you've heard this as well, you know, over the years, and it's, it, we see it with COVID, we saw it, you know, years ago with HIV, we see it now with TB, and, and have seen it for, for, for decades with TB. The challenge is that when we apply our abilities as a a human species and our capabilities and our technologies to address these infectious diseases, they don't in the end get to everyone on the planet who actually needs them, right? And that happens time and time again. You know, uh, the reason why TB still continues to be a problem is that it is predominantly a problem of low and middle income countries, right? Mm -hmm doesn't have to be that way that is or for that matter a problem of certain communities in our parts of the world doesn't have to be that way uh, we saw it with HIV we saw it, we see it with TB and we're seeing it again with COVID right you know where again you know we've been able to deal with COVID more or less in high-income countries become a lot more difficult to deal with in lower and middle-income countries right so in addition to figuring out, you know, how to deal with the pathogens of the future, we also need to figure out how to get these interventions to everybody around the planet who will need them at the time of the next pandemic or at the time right now of the existing epidemics, because short of doing that, yep. we will never be able to eradicate them, right? we will never be able to get rid of them, right? And they'll always keep coming back to the rest of the world, right? So. And we and we saw it in real time over the last few years, you know, with uh, with with uh, with the coronavirus and its and its different variants. Right? Yeah. So anyway, I, I appreciate the opportunity and uh, thanks. Uh, thanks. Uh,
0: it was it was great having you with and thank you for that uh, that that sobering reminder of of what we're dealing with here so um um for everybody that is going to be listening to this episode uh, across the podcast networks or watching on the YouTube channel again you've been listening to Dr. Mini. Chief Executive Officer, Bill and Melinda Gates Medical Research Institute. Um, Amelia, really thanks again for taking the time out of your schedule to come on the show. Obviously, thank you for everything you've been doing the last few decades and what you're doing now. And as we like to say on this show, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow through your work. Really fascinating story.
1: No, thank you, Irma. Very,
2: very kind of you. Thank you.